For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. How do we help students become confident readers? What meaningful conversations should we have to overcome barriers to equity and inclusivity in the classroom? Welcome to Season 4 of Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. This season, we're exploring important topics that impact our students every day. Reading acceleration and recovery, inclusivity, and meeting students just where they're at on their reading journey. We've lined up an amazing team of experts who will inspire you as they share their perspectives to find fresh ways to help you support your students. This season, we're also honoring educators who have driven change in their district by successfully implementing the science of reading. You'll hear from winners of the Amplify Science of Reading Star Awards as they share their experiences fighting for students when no one else would. The science of reading movement continues to grow, and as educators, we will continue to grow with it. It's vital that we focus on research-based practices to deliver classroom instruction that allows students to learn. The more we learn and listen, the more we'll be prepared to lead. Our students are counting on us. Print or digital? That's the topic of today's episode. Joining me are Dr. Patricia Alexandra and Dr. Lauren Trackman, both from the University of Maryland. Together, we will unpack what the research is telling us about this hot topic. Dr. Alexander boasts over three decades of work in literacy and comprehension, and Dr. Trackman specifically examines the effect of medium, print, or digital on reading comprehension. This dynamic duo have lots to say about this topic, and I think you'll enjoy hearing how they came to this research. Well, ladies, I'm really excited to have you join us on this podcast episode today where we get to talk about the differences between digital and print. Um, But before we get started, we love for our listeners to uh, be introduced to who you are, what you do, just get a little bit of background. So I don't know who wants to go first. We're lucky to have two of you today on the episode. So age before beauty. (laughs) I love it. Go ahead. Um, My name is Patricia Alexander. I'm a distinguished university professor at the University of Maryland, where I hold the Jean Mullen uh, Chair Professorship for Literacy. I've been a, uh, I was a literacy teacher for many, many years before I entered uh, university life. And I continue to do a lot of research on text, how you learn from text, what the features of text are that help individuals or, or cause them difficulties in learning. And I've been doing that, uh, I'm not going to tell you how long, but let's just say it's multiple decades. Um, and I still love doing it. Absolutely adore this kind of research. That's awesome. And I think you told me in the pre-call that you actually started doing that research when you were two. So you were two. Yeah, because of the number of decades I happened to mention by accident. And I should say for the record, I used to be a professional blues and jazz singer. So I went from that to being a professor, which is kind of a disconnect. But anyway, that's interesting. That's a fun fact. We like fun facts. So Lauren, how about you? Good morning. My name is Lauren Trackman. I'm an assistant clinical professor of human development at the University of Maryland College Park. Um, I went for my PhD straight from undergraduate, but did study special education in my undergraduate career. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. So but how do the two of you know each other? (laughs) Uh, Patricia was my PhD advisor. 
That's so cool. Yes, That's my so academic cool. family. Yes, and now we're family though too. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Um, and I know that we're going to go all the way back to, I don't know how many years ago, but Lauren, this is really a story of you as a practitioner, you in the classroom who got interested by a question. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so I always thought I wanted to be a special education teacher. My mom was one I grew up always helping out in her classroom after school, etc. And when I was student teaching back in 2012 at this point, I think, um, I was student teaching in a kindergarten classroom in a school district that was in a primarily disadvantaged area. Most of the students were receiving free or reduced lunch. They were taught how to read just like I'm assuming the three of us were taught how to read with it, excuse me, a teacher at the whiteboard or chalkboard. However, when it was time to practice independently, the teacher said, okay, go grab your iPad. And each student went and got their iPad and started practicing reading using this device. And I said to the teacher, I'm like, this is really interesting because again, they're taught the way I was taught, but it looks even from the surface level, like they're interacting with the text differently. They were moving through pages much more quickly than I would assume someone would in a printed source. They were able to click on words and have them define them, et cetera. So I said, what does the research say about reading digitally? She said, I don't know. We want a grant. Ask the principal. So I did because <laughs> uh, I'm nosy. And when I asked the principal, she said, I don't know. We want a grant. It's great. Each kid has an iPad. And it turned out again from at least my research capabilities at that point, there wasn't a ton of research on reading digitally. So I went to my honors advisor and asked her who does this type of work. And she said, there really isn't a ton, but you need to know Patricia Alexander. You should work with her. That's me. No. Yes. <laughs> So I applied for a PhD at University of Maryland and luckily got to work with Patricia. And that's how this all started. So it's like it, you, you weren't planning to get a PhD. Is that no, right? In, no, I was, yeah, I was ready to enter the classroom. It was my junior year of college at that point to be a special education teacher. And this question just kept me awake at night. Well, also, I mean, our relationship clicked. I mean, she came yeah. interviewed and it was like, okay. <laughs> it worked well. We work well together. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's, so, that's, yeah. That's, go ahead, Patricia. No, I was going to say. And so, um, you know, I have to say that at this point in time, I, I was fairly clueless about uh, the potential effects of, of online reading with, especially Lauren was particularly interested in that point with young children, but, uh, but there wasn't even much research at all except for pro- technology, pro-use of technology in classrooms research, even with older students. Mm -hmm. um, and so when Lauren said, Lauren, we have at the University of Maryland an expectation that uh, doctoral students start their own research early. Mm -hmm. And so Lauren said, I have this question. And she put the question for us. And that was the beginning of the end. It was just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then a decade has passed. <laughs> since. But we, we, at that point in time, I don't think Lauren, when we talked about it, we didn't think there would be any big deal. We just wanted to yeah. really figure it out for ourselves. Yeah. And what was that big question, Lauren, that you were that you were thinking about that many years ago? So when I was a baby researcher and didn't know how to write a good research question, <laughs> I thought my first study would answer, what effect does reading digitally have on comprehension? Okay. Now, 10 years later, I can give you some of that answer, <laughs> but I know now that writing a research question, creating research studies takes a lot more specific, intricate questions to more or less chip away at that big question that we'll probably be looking at the rest of our lives. Hmm. And so at that point, there, I mean, you talked about like there not being a lot of research, but what was happening in the classroom? I think, you know, I, I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to remember that many years ago, but we had devices in kids' hands. We were using yep. smart boards and, and things like that. But yeah. I would, also, I would also say, Susan, that parents, like I would assume, you're doing wonderful things for your children the more technology you expose them to earlier. So that was part of the, um, I think, the underwritten assumption that many of us as parents or educators assumed because all the print, all the t uh, published works were really talking about the positive effects of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, let's maximize the use of this device or this form of, of, of um, technology. And so there wasn't many people out there going, hmm, maybe we should ask 
is there any potential re residual effects? Um, and that was part of the problem. Hmm. Yeah, even districts at that time, I remember, I'm from Pennsylvania, were advertising that they were going paperless, that each student was going to be given a laptop and that no paper would be used, we're eco-friendly and it's the way of the future. But again, it didn't seem that we had stopped and take taking a closer look at what are the effects of this transfer to moving everything to the digital space. Hmm. Interesting. So what did that first study look like? So that big question, <laughs> how did you start chipping away at that? So we chipped away at that by conducting now what seems like a pretty basic study. We, of course, had two mediums. And by medium, I mean print versus digital. And we yep. also looked at text types. So we wanted to know would a story read differently than a narrative text. So we had our expository and narrative text, a newspaper passage and a book passage. And we looked at effects of medium on those. So what we I, did was... Yeah. Could I add to that, Lauren? We thought, well, let's start with undergraduates. because we, I teach a lot of uh, large classes of undergraduates. And, I said, and we all assume they're digital natives. So we said, let's start there because it's likely we'll, we'll find that they just do just as well on online than they do in person. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we knew they'd be competent readers. Again, if they're at the University of Maryland, they are good enough readers to have gotten into this great university. So we're not going to have any noise of many reading difficulties, et cetera. So that will m muddy our data. Mm, okay. Well, that's what we thought. <laughs> what we <laughs> found out is that it turned out students did a lot better for comprehension when reading in print for any question that asked beyond just what was the gist of what you read. When it and comes just, I, I'm sorry, it's okay if I keep interrupting. Of course. It, it's our relationship anyway. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I would say that we thought just here just means if you read uh, War and Peace, did you know it was about War and Peace? You know, that yep. kind of big question. Yep. And what was really interesting is we asked them at the beginning a couple situational questions. So you're preparing for an exam. Do you want to read in print or digitally? You're reading a magazine on the beach. Do you want to read in print or digitally? And we expected to see differences based on the task. However, overall, college students prefer to read digitally no matter the task. And then, and this was Patricia's brilliance, she had me <laughs> add one question at the end that I didn't even think about, which was a question of calibration. So we were interested in the difference in their actual comprehension and their perceived comprehension. Oh. So in our first study, we simply asked, in which medium did you comprehend more, print or digital? We found and this that- was at, And this was after they had taken the test. Yes, yeah, okay. they've taken their comprehension test. They've read their passages. They already talked about what they prefer. Students overwhelmingly perform to read digitally. And in fact, I couldn't get them out of my office. Would start telling me, no, I'm better digital because I do this, this, and this strategy. Hmm. When we look at the data, they're wrong. And it wasn't just a little bit. It was, I want to say, 97% were miscalibrated, mm -hmm. that they believe they read better in digital. However, their performance was better for comprehension and print. Wow. Wow. Why do you think they came in and tried to tell you all the reasons why they read better in digital? What was that motivation? I. It's funny. I think they just were so sure. That's right. They're just so, you know what I mean? Confident. We, yes, that confidence, again, that doesn't always align with correctness that we see in things beyond reading too. Yeah. Yeah. They, they bought the message that they're digital natives. So of course, you know, I'm on, I'm on the computer all the time. I'm, you know, compared to my mother who knows nothing, I am so good at this sort of thing. When in truth, this overconfidence is part of their problem. So you said like, um, if it was at a detailed level and not just sort of the gist of it. So what kind of things did you actually measure in the, in that, assessment that you gave them? Our first assessment, we did open-ended questions and it was extremely open-ended. The first question again was, what was the main idea or gist of what you read? The second idea was list any significant details you may recall. Mm -hmm. And the third question was jot down anything else you remember from the passage. Yeah. Okay. So, so the distinction was, tell us what you remember that was important sort of thing. And yeah. the other one is anything else that comes to mind, jot it mm -hmm. down. Hmm. So then you put those things together and 
found out, wow, they're really doing better in print when they're comprehending when they're reading print. And, yes. and they don't, they aren't self-aware of that. Yes. And that was no matter the text type. So again, that answered one of our oh, sub questions. Right. Yep. Doesn't matter the text type. These differences were consistent across the board. And we were shocked. Can I just say that we had no idea that the data would be that strong um, and, and paint that picture that we're, that we're describing because we went in it saying, well, what do you think? We'll start with undergraduates because they're so good at this sort of thing. The answer was we were just floored. And apparently when uh, we published this piece, the world was floored because we had everybody calling us and, and we, our, our piece was published all over the world. I have two students from the Netherlands and in, the, in one of the local papers in the, in the Netherlands, this piece was on the front page and somebody s sent it back to us. So the world was surprised and, hmm. and shocked by this finding. Hmm. There's actually a school district in Australia that what took a step back from their digital only rules that my family jokes that Trish and I would never be welcome in that town by all the students. <laughs> <laughs> they all got their laptops taken away because of our research. <laughs> that wow. we're probably the villains of that small town. Wow. So that was just, that was step one. Yeah. And that was with university students. What did that lead you to ask next? So step two led us to why. What was going on here that made these differences so significant? Again, we know it's not text type, but what is going on here? So anecdotally, I had seen, I thought that they were reading more quickly when reading digitally. Mm -hmm. And then I was in a motivation class at the same time and introduced by a cohort member to a theory by Kurt called the theory of knowing. And that theory states that if something, if you do it quickly, you think it's easy. So again, maybe you remember back in grade school, if you breeze through a test, you're like, oh, that was easy as can be. <laughs> but we all know that sometimes you either did really well in that test or you bombed it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so we had some anecdotal evidence and we now had some theoretical background to explore what's going on with processing time. Okay. So our next study, we didn't have to look at text type because we knew no matter the text type data suggests it doesn't matter. Digital is still better. What happens if we just monitor reading time without the student knowing? And what happens if we ask for a more fine-tuned calibration judgment? So instead of which did you do better in, rate your performance in. Oh, okay. And so I would also oh, I'm sorry, sorry to, I would also say, Lauren, too, there was this kind of insight that we have that from your lit review that got published mm -hmm. as well. And that length of the passage seemed to differentiate uh, the, true, the, the text research that was finding a, a negative effect for online and that that wasn't. So length seemed to be also a point that we interjected into these studies. And what is it? Shorter, longer? What's the length? We found that the longer it is, the more that participants did better when reading in print. And that was surprising because our first baby study, if you will, had the shortest text length we've ever looked at, and we still yeah. had those differences. Okay. Okay. So you, so, so now we're into the second study. How did you construct that? What did the, what did the task look like for, for those participants? The task was almost exactly the same. So again, participants, it was counterbalanced. So participant A walked in and was given a text to read in print, then answered questions in print, then was given a text to read in digital answered in digital comprehension questions, then did yep. their calibration. Okay. Participant B would read it in a flipped order. And okay. there's four conditions to make sure that medium and text subject are all counterbalanced. So it's not just, oh, they were paying better attention the first time and got bored, et cetera. Yeah. Now, without the participant knowing, we were recording how long they spent reading. And, oh, Okay. There were some other things that were in this study, Lauren, did we also tr begin to start tracking some behaviors or was that the third study? The third study. Yes, all we, so many. <laughs> all we did here was reading time and again, that deeper processing, uh, deeper calibration measurement instead of just which did you do better? We had them rate their performance in yeah. print from zero to 100 and in digital from zero to 100. So what did you find in study number two? I feel like we're opening doors here. And in study number two, we found that participants read much more quickly when reading digital. 
and yet again saw their performance, judged their performance to be better in digital. And that, again, that was a large difference compared to print. They were overconfident in their performance. Mm. So essentially, the the same thing you found in study one. Yes. So those trends were the same. The only thing that we found more of, again, is part of that why. So now we know why. We we think think it's because, yeah, we think it's that they're reading quicker. This theory of knowing tells us, oh, they must think it's quick, it's easy. Which mm. again, when you think about reading digitally, makes sense. Now, and I also, Lauren, in this one, did we? Be, I think we also decided we wanted to really use expository text that yes. was used in universities. So we're actually Correct. using the kind of text that they read. Okay, and yes. we also tested how much they knew before they started reading, because that's always found to be a, a factor in what you know when you come out of. That's reading. right. Yes, yeah. we looked at their prior knowledge as well. Hmm. Um. And again, finding that they're reading quicker makes sense when you think about how you navigate online. So reading online is terrific to find headlines. I like to wake up and open a new source online. But again, we often treat it as a quick read piece. And this is when doing uh, during my lit review, I found that we weren't the only industry looking at this. Mm-hmm. I found some research published in journalism that advertisements were selling for more money if they fell on a web page anywhere, if you put a capital E on your computer, there. Mm-hmm. So across the top, down the left side, down the middle, down the bottom. So we were not the only ones looking at reading digitally and what's happening differently there. It just seemed that we were one of the first in education to question this. Mm. Yeah. And on all of these findings, Susan, started leading us to increasingly more complex sophisticated studies. So that that's why I was asking Lauren, but there's been so many, I think seven of them so far, and there's more coming. But what we wanted to do then is, tr- and we had to be really creative to do this, or Lauren had to be, I was only helping, is to try to figure out now precisely, can we nail down some of the things that they're doing more precisely while they are reading? Because now mm-hmm. we've got this additional hypothesis that scrolling is a negative effect. You lose sense of place when you scroll uh, when you're reading digitally. It doesn't have that that more situated sort of sense of where something is that you read it um, or where you saw it. And so that we added the issue of, of, of looking at sort of behaviors. And it's easy to do when you have it online, right? Because everything can be recorded. We have... Uh, all these apps that allow us to look at where you're looking, what you're doing, how long you're staying at this spot. But when you su- also want to do balancing against print, that's hard. How do you really record what they're doing? And that's where Lauren had to, and I had, Lauren particularly had to start being inventive and look every possible way to figure out how to track what a person is doing while they're reading in print. Hmm. That's is that fair, Lauren? How, yes. Uh, yeah, that's fair. More than fair. So you've done seven, I don't know how many studies you've done now. As a result of all of this, what is what is sort of your research indicating about the differences for reading between print and digital? Yeah. There are a few big takeaways. I'll start, Patricia. I'm glad. I think the biggest takeaway is that students treat digital text differently as of now. They are not engaging with the text in the same manner as they are with a printed source. So that includes things such as rereading important sentences or key details, or even as our more recent research has looked at, when they look at a picture and its caption in the text, it occurs differently as soon as you switch to a digital medium. That's right. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I think the time issue has been a fairly consistent one. I think this issue about losing sense of there's a physical sense of where things are in a book. Yeah. One of the reasons, especially with the younger readers, the more that they're kind of, um, I think, influenced by the, the placement of information that you have a lot of difficulties in that sort of way when you're uh, moving to digital. The, uh, the digital, too, and I was thinking about this based on the fact that, you know, though those of us who have been in literacy for years know how important it is for parents to read to their children when they're young. Yeah. Right. Yep. The interesting thing about it is the, in, uh, um, a lot of kids who have this 
wonderful experience. We'll talk about the intimacy of that experience. You, you sit close to the parent, you're holding the books together. You know, you can point to things as you go through and that sort of thing. And there's a, there's a physical sense to a book that is lost when you're reading on an iPad. Um, the other thing we know is so reading of that kind of intimacy often occurs in evenings, just before a child goes to sleep. Mm-hmm. And we know now from the research that even the lighting on digital is very is is disruptive to like REM sleep. It yep. really affects you, and so that this is not even good for the child in some way uh, neurologically when they're starting to read. So there's a lot of things that are being picked up about this. Now let's be clear: the the kind of suggestions we would make both to parents and teachers, there is the fact that digital is not going anywhere. It's it is an expedient sort of thing. Right. Um, it's it's uh, convenient. I can't carry a library with me when I travel as, as you do. So what do I do? I have everything loaded up on my um, my iPad. But but what are we trying to figure out is under what conditions is it better to read in paper than digitally? And how do we even improve what if you're going to read digitally? What is it you should do to improve your comprehension? And this is where Lauren's dissertation study that we're now writing up is an important piece because it does show you that you can make differences in what what even college students remember by simple uh, sort of acts that you do. And so, Lauren, why don't you share about your dissertation study? Because I think that's the next big impressive piece. Sure. So um, my dissertation study was a two-part study. The first part, again, is going to sound a lot like the other studies we've talked about. (laughs) Participants came in, read two texts in two mediums in a counterbalance order. But like Patricia said, we wanted to use sources that they were encountering in their everyday classroom experiences. So these were Mm -hmm. textbooks that were used at the University of Maryland. We made sure that none of the participants had used them for a course they took a pretest, uh, 10 questions for each topic. It was volcanoes and I think extreme weather. Yeah. Um, and then they read their two mediums, did their comprehension questions and their calibration. I would now, say their comprehension questions were even getting more sophisticated. I should say that. Yes. So we're so, getting even tougher on them. <laughs> yes, we got tougher on them. And this study was the second time that we looked at the source of the information of the questions. So we had some questions that the answer could only have been found in the text of what they read. Okay. Some that could only be found in the pictures and corresponding caption that they read and some that required them to synthesize information across the graphs in what they read and the text itself. Hmm. So that gave us some really interesting data and we could be like, oh, they didn't look at that graph. You can tell immediately from their comprehension. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Now what... I think really got interesting is we brought them back two weeks later and we gave them a digital reading intervention. So this was a 30 minute interactive presentation that went over five topics with them. It went over print and digital reading preferences, Mm -hmm. print and digital comprehension performance, where we talked about our previous studies. It showed them data and research on reading speed in print versus digitally They then learned about judgments, performance, and calibration. And lastly, they learned about reading strategies and profiling. At the end of this intervention, they were asked a couple comprehension questions about what they learned. And instead of using that data for our sake, we wanted them to make sure they understood. So if they got it wrong, you would hear my voice pop up and re-explain what the correct answer was. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) We then had them read one more time digitally and had the same conditions as the previous study. And we found a really strong improvement just from that 30 minute intervention. Hmm. What, because you, do you know why? Is it because you made them aware of what they were doing or? For the majority of the readers, it seems that just being told, Hey, you read more quickly when you read digitally and don't know it. Hey, you're overconfident in your performance when you yeah, your calibration sucks. Yeah, your calibration sucks. (laughs) (laughs) And we went through what they're what they were doing differently. We said you're rereading less often. You're not looking at the text when the you're not looking at the picture when the text says as seen in figure 4.2. Then again, this simple 30 minute intervention 
showed across three of the four profiles we found nice improvements in comprehension at all levels of our questioning. Can you talk about the profiles? Because I think that's important too. Lauren, do you remember? Yes. We had four profiles. So we had first the deeper processors. These are your star students if you're an educator. They, <laughs> <laughs> they're the ones you want in your class. They routinely reread the segments of the text. Um, they moved back and forth in the passage as if they were almost relating it. And they also would ask more procedural questions in general. Mm-hmm. The next were our plotters. Our plotters read slowly, but pretty just in a stagnant forward motion. So we didn't see much rereading. We didn't see questioning. So again, they did take their time, but they didn't really interact much more beyond that surface level with the text. The next was the glider. So the glider is that kid who just was here for his extra credit, (laughs) read it as quickly as possible and left. And again, I get it. I was that in undergrad and still have guilt from it now that I'm on the other side of this data collection. (laughs) So again, they read quickly. They read surface level. They did not do many or any deeper processing strategies throughout any of their reading. And then we had our sampler, which I think are the most interesting to look at. They read and reread certain sections. They had a high reading time overall, but they sometimes would skip sections that they didn't think were important at all. Hmm. So where they thought it mattered, we saw those deeper uh, level processing strategies of rereading, of questioning, of going back to those key and important things, et cetera. Yet again, sometimes may skip whole paragraphs at a time or Hmm. glide right over them. Hmm. And I think that's uh, for somebody who studies test, test taking, which I do, that's probably the person who's who has kind of developed these strategies because they're really looking to find the answer that's going to be asked on the questions that follow, not because they care about the passage uh, and understanding the text as a whole. Hmm. That's fascinating. So what, as a result of that, what is your like next steps into this? What are you thinking now? And then I have a couple other questions about, about how we can think about this for yeah, the Yeah, what's our next 10 studies? Uh, yeah, well, have you have you no. have you organized your next this sounds like a lifetime, Lauren. <laughs> yeah. My next next lifetime is book two. Um so luckily we have Patricia has a wonderful new lab member who came in with interest in visuals. So we want to look even more deeply at visuals and their role in text and their significance. Mm-hmm. And I will say that COVID has shifted a lot of our plans too. So So, tell me about that. So COVID has changed how we collect data and at the same time for practitioners, how they teach. Yeah. So for the past two years, instead of my normal data collection, I've spent a lot of my time working with practitioners and interviewing for practitioner magazines or journals, et cetera, on how can we make learning digitally, reading digitally work. Which goes back to one of the main ideas Patricia said should be a takeaway from this is that perhaps we just need to be focusing on modeling good strategies for reading digitally. Mm, As we saw in this pandemic, reading digitally is not going anywhere. And in fact, is what made learning even a possibility the past year and a half. Yeah, yeah. So so it's not that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater and burn all of our iPads but perhaps we need to be looking at how can we teach teachers to teach reading more effectively when using a digital device. Mm-hmm. I would add to that one of the lessons I would have is, uh, particularly when you're dealing with young children, is use a mixture of print and digital, but know why you're using one or the other. This should be an informed decision on a teacher's part, not some sort of just knee-jerk response, you know. Um, it, it always we know this as people who've been teachers ourselves, you make very careful choices depending on what your goal is, what we know about these students. But you but rule one is no teacher at any level should assume that their students are digital natives, meaning that they know how to use the um, online technologies uh, always for the sake of learning. I talk about it as you, learning to be smart about smart technologies. Because right now, in many ways, whether you're at a university like I am, or you're working with very young children or children with special needs, I think the issue is that you have to assume that the children need to learn when and where. When's a good time that I, should I really look at print? 
And part of it is taking things off the page or off the screen rather, because that's really the key in learning. Part of it is of writing notes to myself when I'm reading my articles online so that not everything is simply on the screen at all times, putting things in my own words. Um, and I think having kids discuss uh, what they read in, in a kind of lively sort of discussion and being aware of what kind of, the, of parts of the text are gonna be more important may make people, children and, and older students more attentive to parts of the text um, as they are reading online or in print. All those things matter, hmm. but teachers cannot take as a given that kids know how to use it. Yes, kids prefer to use it, but preference, as we can tell you from calibration, is not a good marker. Hmm. That's a great point, Patricia. And while it may sound antithetical, part of my role as a clinical professor in our department is I help with online learning. So now people immediately say, wait, your research says that prints better. Why would they make you in charge of that? But it's because I understand that there has to be a lot more explicit teaching than you may think. So at the beginning of the pandemic, when I would work one-on-one -on -one with faculty preparing their online courses and for my own courses, I would say your first day should be an orientation to be to online learning. You should be going over with the students Zoom 101. Yeah. So mm -hmm. teachers, again, this sounds so silly, but at the beginning of the pandemic, teachers were asking students to insert their pronouns. They don't know how to change their name on Zoom or to raise their hand without showing them how to use those buttons on the first day. Um, but on even other levels, I would mention my research and I'd say online learning may be more difficult for you. Here's why. And here's how to fix it. And I'd show them I have a notebook next to me all the time, even when I'm teaching online. And I expect you as my student to have the same thing, that we know that writing is a lot better for memory than typing. So even if you're learning online and this isn't the best scenario for you, you can make it better by engaging with your learning differently. It goes back to, um, in motivation literature, the, the construct of self-regulation. Are, are you regulating yourself? Are you aware of what you are doing? And we know time after time, generation after generation, we are terrible at self-regulating. We need to be shown how to do that, to be aware of it. How to judge whether I'm understanding something or not as I'm reading it has been true for a long, long time. But it seems that the ease and comfort of digital may be making it more difficult. Hmm. So what does this mean for teachers that are in, I'm going to use a broad range, because you did a lot of work in your university level. Yeah. What would this mean for K-8 teachers? I think that most obvious and easiest thing a teacher could do pre-K through college is model what they do when they're reading digitally. So again, at the beginning of my college courses, even graduate level, I explained to them when I would print an article versus when I just read it on my laptop. I explained to them how I engage with the text. I'll share my screen on Zoom and use my mouse to underline the text as if it were my finger mm -hmm. and say, the text is saying, as seen in figure 4.5, I'm going to now go to figure 4.5, look at it, read the caption, and then go back to the text. That these things may seem obvious to you as the teacher, but our data suggests that even competent college-level readers aren't doing them. So okay. how can we expect K-8 students to be doing them? Yeah, I would also say if I were a K-8 teacher, which I was for many years, I would... If I am, am kind of in the mode of having to use uh, digital text as for teaching um, or for, even for my literacy class, I would use some of the more sophisticated apps now that are out there. They're sophisticated in what they show, not in their complexity, to annotate. Teach kids how to annotate and make marks to, so that they're engaging that text in some sort of physical way that mm. you would if you were actually reading a book in print. Um, you know, and we always said even in the old, and I say old because it was like 30 years, 40 years ago, that things like highlighting is just a motor activity for many kids. So yeah. you want them to do something other than just highlighting. You want them to take little notes, to make a point about what they like about something or how it relates to them. Um, teach them how to annotate because those are th those apps are available. 
So is there a difference between annotating digitally or annotating, like reading a digital text and then making paper pencil annotations or notes? Uh, Lauren, you can answer there that. There is. <laughs> so I, it, there, if you have the act of writing itself, we find that there's muscle memory. That again, the more types of memory, the more ways you engage with text, the better. So even it's the best is pen and paper, as I say, but it's still great if you have a stylus and are handwriting on your digital Mm -hmm. device. Mm -hmm. All of those are a better option than typing. Typing does not give you that muscle memory. Another great quick fix I always suggest, again, a lot of our college students didn't have printers, were at home, et cetera, this past year and a half, is make your text look like a textbook. So change the layout. You have it at the top bar normally for your PDF or textbook. Have it look like two pages. Because like Patricia said, those visual placeholders do help. Most of us are not lucky enough to have uh, photographic memory. But if at the top left, it said you're recording a podcast, and then you go to the bottom right of the next page, it says you're in the bathtub. You're going to be like, wait a second, I could have sworn like somewhere in the top left, I was recording a podcast. That doesn't feel right. So give yourself those visual placeholders that often Mm -hmm. digital text doesn't afford. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So what's interesting here is I'm going to go all the way back to your first question. (laughs) (laughs) Because what you were asking in your first question was, is print or digital better? And what you know now or what we know now is... It's a little more complicated than that. That's, yeah, <laughs> that turns out I couldn't answer that in one study, and I'll never be able to answer that in a yes or no question. That's right. Yeah, but I would say that habituation is always a, a killer for us. Or, you know that we get in the habit of doing something, we do it because it's it's habitual, right? Absolutely. So that students students' preferences are because that's how they have been um, exercising their preference. You know, they've been exercising it their way, that way. It's habituated. So what we have to do sometimes is break up our typical habits, do things differently just to instigate a different way of looking at things. And teachers should get, you know, I don't remember, I know you taught and Lauren has taught, but I remember even when I was in school that we always did vocabulary exactly the same way. You know, here's a word, use it in a Mm -hmm. sentence, write a Mm -hmm. definition. And it got so habituated that you turned off mentally to the whole act. You lost a sense of how to learn what words meant because you were just in that routine. And what we have to do is balance novelty with routine in classrooms when it comes to literacy practices. Do some things because kids are familiar with it, but then also find an alternative way to look at things. And that's true with digital and with print. Um, if If you're always having the kids go grab their digital devices when it's independent reading, you shouldn't do that all the time. There should be a point where you stop and say, okay, let's try something different. Let's do it this way. Because that causes their minds to think about things differently. Hmm. And do you think it's it's right to say then that even at the early grades, we should be teaching kids explicitly how to navigate digital text differently than navigating print text, and it just be something that we we introduce to them? I do it with my twelve week old already. <laughs> <laughs> you do (laughs) that I'll be like oh no I just skipped over that whole paragraph because of scrolling (laughs) but on a serious note yes I don't think it's ever too early to explicitly teach this because again we're explicitly teaching how to read Mm -hmm. so now that there's a new medium it makes sense that we are explicitly teaching that there the difference is in that because it seems that these skills that we have in reading print are not translating into reading digitally as smoothly and as effortlessly as one would expect Hmm. Yeah, and I will tell you, the students that I have in in university who are preparing for things like law school exams or for the uh, graduate school exams, they have come to realize that if something is really important for them to know, they will use print. They will find a way to to take it off of the screen because there's something about memory still that is enhanced by the fact that you manipulate it in some way in a physical sense. So that sometimes you know, if there's something you really care to remember and know, then you pro- probably should maybe print off that page, in, at least that, that section of the text that matters to you. Hmm. 
Hmm, that's interesting. And then um, I guess my my other connection, and I'm going to go back to pick up something that you said about how it's good for teachers to sort of talk through or model how they're interacting. Do you actually think that we know how we're interacting given the, what your research says yeah. about our perceptions and how can we change that so that we can help people understand what they do digitally so we can teach kids differently? That's a great question because the teachers of today are probably the students that were in our lab at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right. We said are really bad at this and now they're teaching. Um, I, I think it should be a continuing education thing. I think this is something that everyone should be learning for lifelong learning, but Patricia, what do you think? That's a great question, Susan. Well, it's so funny. I just wrote, and not, not that your audience would care about this, I just wrote this very intense chapter about philosophy and consciousness and awareness. <laughs> There's so much that we do in our life that we're not aware about. Yeah. We, we don't really sit and look at ourselves and what we're doing. It's a good practice, whether it's literacy. I don't care what you're doing at times. Just sit back sometimes and stop and look at what you're doing. Self-reflect. Um Become conscious and aware of what you're doing because our life is such that we live in what we call kind of like this living fast sort of way mentally as well. We just go through procedures. We go through things and aren't even conscious of why we do what we do or what we did. So your question, Susan, is exactly on, on cue. Everyone needs to be step back sometimes watch themselves become their own monitors of what they're doing. You can't teach unless you're, you're, you are aware of what you are doing in order to, as Lauren says, to model it, to make mm -hmm. it, to bring it in, in a Vygotskyan sense out of yourself and into a public space. We all need to do that. And the teachers particularly can't take things for granted. Um, and that's one of the big lessons from this, from the beginning. Hmm. And so you have seen then because of your initial research, lots of people that are doing during doing work in lots of different places um, as it relates to digital and print. What do you think some of the other interesting work is that's happening? Yeah, I, I think a there's some great work in digital, but um, a lot of it has to do with digital literacies. I think of going back to Don Liu's work, the, um, Julie Cuero's work. Um, there's a lot of work that way that's, that tells us what students need to learn about what digital is like, generally speaking, which is a bit different than what we're doing here, but it's very informed work. There's a lot of work of value, it goes back to Lauren's initial interest, on how to use digital to help students with severe uh, problems mm -hmm. to begin with. And, and that way, the adaptive use of technology is of great value, right? Um, and, and so there's many ways in which we can maximize the use of, of the digital features in order to help students who have some difficulty in some sort of way uh, with print or aspects of reading or attentional sort of problems. That way we can do. Um, so the, the world is rich out there in that sort of thing, um, but we just need to know how to think through it, back to your point, figure out what we need for our students to to, to improve and to do better, and then find a way to make that happen through modeling, through explicit teaching um, when it is needed. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I know you're about scientific studies of reading. And the point is, there's a lot of debate on whether or not we are over, kind of overdoing some features of text instruction uh, at the sake of others. It's always a matter of balance. It's always a matter of a teacher I make informed choices depending on the needs of the students who are sitting there in front of me. Hmm. I always do that. And every teacher must. And the more that teachers know about reading online versus in print, the more they can be aware themselves and make these informed choices. So Lauren, f f a question for you. If, if there's a teacher that's like, sort of like you were really interested in, <laughs> in learning more about this, where would you point a teacher to say, go to this place if you're really interested in learning more about what the research is telling us about digital versus print? Um, I would have them check out either Patricia and I's work and websites. Um, and how I was taught, and it, I still use the strategy all the time, is find one paper you like, look at the reference section, and go from there. Yeah, so that's look, great advice. That's, yeah, look at who 
the author you like and the work they're doing is citing, and you'll find a lot more work you like and what they're doing. And I speak just for myself, but this is how I found Patricia's email them. That's I love to hear from an educator yeah. who says, I want to learn more. How can I use this in my classroom? Mm-hmm. I, yeah. that's, yeah. go ahead. No, I was going to say absolutely right. The other thing we haven't talked about that we need to do is reach parents. Mm-hmm. Right. Because t- children who are habituated to digital devices by the time they enter first grade. Yeah. yeah. So that how you use, how digital devices are used in your home with your children is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have digital devices, are they using them in a limited sort of way? Are they spending too much time on screen? And that's part of this idea of they're so used to digital because they spend their lives in that digital world. And the other side of it is a parent, as I said to you, I would always use some sort of, if it's about reading in particular, I'd use some sort of intimacy concern about making sure that that experience of reading with your child is a positive emotional and involving experience. Um, and that means in part in the, if it's in the evenings, get off those devices. Stay and, and, and use them, as I said, it, it's a simple rule. Are you, your children using digital smart technologies smartly or are they passive? Are they using them as, as a substitute for you know, getting involved uh, or using their minds or being engaged in some other way? So as a parent, be aware, uh, be conscious um, about how those digital devices exist in your in your children's lives. Hmm. That's great advice, um, especially for Lauren with a new with a new yeah. little one. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Noted. Thank you. Do um, not hand him an iPad. Never. You, like, or, you should you see know. the amount of books in his nursery. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Oh, well, ladies, this has been super informative. And what we're going to do is we'll make sure that uh, in our show notes, we link our listeners to websites that they can go, um, your website, so that they can go explore and and see. And and thank you, Lauren, for, you know, being interested in this question, um, yeah. how many years ago, and helping move <laughs> forward this, this research and this understanding so that we can uh, support our students well. So thanks again for joining us. It's been just a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure for us too. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for listening and keep your feedback coming. Want to learn more? Be sure to stay connected by subscribing to your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. And visit Amplify.com to check out our brand new resource site, offering all the tools and tips you need to continue on your Science of Reading journey. Until next time, keep the hope take the action and stay in touch. Let's get our kids to love reading.